Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I am Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. I hope everyone is doing well and, as always, staying safe. This week, we're going to jump right in to discussing Chapter 55, but first, a recap of Chapter 54. The Free Zone Committee discussed the details of asking and sending their three chosen scouts west. They also briefly discussed the possibility of losing people to Las Vegas, and they had a debate as to whether or not they should jail people who might decide to go. Harold, who is now on the burial committee, has begun to feel some real camaraderie with people in Boulder, but any thought of perhaps staying there is derailed when Nadine Cross shows up at his house and seduces him. She tells him that she knows what's in his heart because Flag showed her, and once they've done what they're meant to do, they can leave Boulder together and go west to him, Flag. But of course, it's Harold's choice to make, and Harold chooses Nadine and Randall Flag. Now, in Chapter 55, Larry is at the judge's house, sitting with the older man on his front porch. He says Boulder could be quite the operation if they can get the power on by winter. Otherwise, people will be leaving to head south. But Larry has faith that Ralph and Brad will get the place up and running by then. The judge thinks that maybe it's a good thing that Mother Abigail is gone. Maybe people should be free to judge for themselves what the lights in the sky are. Larry's not quite sure what Judge Ferris means by that. So the judge explains, I wonder if we need to reinvent that whole tiresome business of gods and saviors and ever afters before we reinvent the flushing toilet. That's what I'm saying. I wonder if this is the right time for gods. See, Judge Ferris thinks Mother Abigail is probably dead. She's 108 years old and she's been gone for six days and no one has found a trace of her. He goes on to say, she was an amazing woman, completely outside any rational frame of reference. Perhaps one of the reasons I'm glad to have her gone is because I'm such a rational old curmudgeon. I like to creep through my daily round to water my garden. Did you see the way I've brought the begonias back? I'm quite proud of that. To read my books, to write my notes for my own book about the plague. I like to do all those things, and then have a glass of wine at bedtime, and fall asleep with an untroubled mind. Yes, none of us want to see portents and omens, no matter how much we like our ghost stories and the spooky films. None of us want to really see a star in the east or a pillar of fire by night. We want peace and rationality and routine. If we have to see God in the black face of an old woman, it's bound to remind us that there's a devil for every god. And our devil may be closer than we like to think. And Larry is a bit awkward when he tells the judge that that's why he's there. But the judge already knows why Larry's there, and he accepts. He was able to figure it out. He had wondered how long it would be before the idea surfaced. It's important to know what's happening out west if the free zone has any chance of survival. 
But then the judge asks an interesting question to Larry. Tell me, has the committee discussed what might happen if we decided we liked it better over there? If we decided to stay? Larry is a bit taken aback, and he admits that they hadn't discussed it. Of course, there's an attraction in having the lights on. Maybe Charlie and Penning felt it too. But Larry says good riddance to bad rubbish, and the judge agrees to leave the next day in a Land Rover. He'll go north to Wyoming and then west, and there could be snow coming back, which could make the trip take even longer. Larry says no one is holding a gun to his head, but the judge points out that Larry is trying to absolve his responsibility to him. Larry thinks that maybe he is, but he knows that the judge's chances of coming back are slim. And maybe the judge is too old. The judge responds, I am too old for adventure, but I hope I am not too old to do what I feel is right. There is an old woman out there someplace who has probably gone to a miserable death because she felt it was right. Prompted by religious mania, I have no doubt. But people who try hard to do the right thing always seem mad. Ready to get off the subject of going west, the judge asks about Lucy. And Larry says she's fine, no problems there, except he's worried about Nadine. He thinks she might be considering suicide. And the judge replies with cold indifference, if her depression deepens into a chronic, cyclical thing, she may indeed kill herself. But Larry can only be one man. And Larry's choice is made, isn't it? Larry says yes. The judge tells Larry to live with it. He says, for God's sakes, Larry, grow up. Develop a little self-righteousness. A lot of that is an ugly thing, God knows, but a little applied all over your scruples is an absolute necessity. It is to the soul what a good sunblock is to the skin during the heat of the summer. You can only captain your own soul, and from time to time, some smart-ass psychologist will question your ability to even do that. Grow up. Your Lucy is a fine woman. To take responsibility for more than her and your own soul is to ask for too much. And asking for too much is one of humanity's more popular ways of courting disaster. So the judge is very frank, and Larry says that he does like talking to him. And the judge thinks that's because he's telling Larry exactly what he wants to hear. And then he adds, there are a great many ways to commit suicide, you know. And before too much time had passed... Larry had occasion to recall that remark in bitter circumstances. As promised, the next day, the judge leaves Boulder, but when he's waved down by Wezak and Harold on his way out, he says he's going to Denver for the day, but he did not head towards Denver. He takes a different route until he's able to see the Rockies, where Boulder lay at its base. He had told Larry he was too old for adventure and God save him, but that had been a lie. His heart hadn't beat with this quick rhythm for 20 years. The air had not tasted this sweet. Colors had not seemed this bright. Judge Ferris drove on, glad to be making his start. He had slept poorly last night, and he would sleep better tonight under the stars, his old body wrapped firmly in two sleeping bags. He wondered if he would ever see Boulder again, and thought the chances were probably against it. And yet, his excitement was very great. It was one of the finest days of his life. Stu, Ralph, and Nick bike out to North Boulder to Tom Cullen's house. Tom lives alone and has decorated his lawn with dozens of plastic statues. 
many of which are the Virgin Mary and Jesus. He's happy to see his three friends, and he invites them inside, where they see he has decorated as enthusiastically inside as he had outside. Nick asks Tom, through a note read by Ralph, if he would mind being hypnotized again. Except this time it's very important. It's not a game, like the time Stan did it way back when. Tom agrees, and Stu says the key phrase, Tom, would you like to see an elephant? Tom's eyes close and his head droops forward. When he speaks, the voice is different somehow. It reminded Stu of something which had happened when he was 18 and graduating from high school. They had been in the boys' locker room before the ceremony, all the guys he'd been going to school with since, well, since the first day of the first grade in at least four cases, and almost as long in many others. And for just a moment, he had seen how much their faces had changed between those old days, those first days, and that moment of insight, standing on the tile floor of the locker room with the black robe in his hands. That vision of change had made him shiver then, and it made him shiver now. The faces he had looked into had no longer been faces of children, but neither had they yet become the faces of men. They were faces in limbo, faces caught perfectly between two well-defined states of being. This voice, coming out of the shadowland of Tom Cullen's subconsciousness, seemed like those faces, only infinitely sadder. Stu thought it was the voice of the man forever denied. Stu speaks to Tom. He tells him Nick is there, and Ralph, and they're his friends. They would like Tom to do something for them, for the free zone, but it will be dangerous. Tom seems to know what they're going to ask, almost like Judge Ferris had. And Tom surprises the other three men by saying the dark man's name, though he calls him Randy Flagg. (laughs) They ask Tom how he knows Flagg, and Tom explains from his dreams. He sees his face, but none of the others had ever seen Flagg's face. It had always been hidden. When they ask Tom what Flagg looks like, it takes Tom a while to reply. And then he says, he looks like anybody you see on the street, but when he grins birds fall dead off telephone lines. When he looks at you a certain way, your prostate goes bad and your urine burns. The grass yellows up and dies where he spits. He's always outside. He came out of time. He doesn't know himself. He has the name of a thousand demons. Jesus knocked him into a herd of pigs once. His name is Legion. He's afraid of us. We're inside. He knows magic. He can call the wolves and live in the crows. He's the king of nowhere, but he's afraid of us. He's afraid of inside. Tom is afraid of him, but he'll do what they want him to do. Ralph seems to seize on this opportunity and asks Tom if Mother Abigail is still alive. And then he exhales with great relief when Tom confirms that she is. But she's not right with God yet. She's in the wilderness. God has lifted her up in the wilderness. She does not fear the terror that flies at noon or the terror that creeps at midnight. Neither will the snake bite her nor the bee sting her. But she's not right with God yet. It was not the hand of Moses that brought the water from the rock. It was not the hand of Abigail that turned the weasels back with their bellies empty. She's to be pitied. She will see, but she will see too late. There will be death. His death. She will die on the wrong side of the river. Ralph doesn't want to hear this part, and he asks Stu to stop Tom, which he does. He asks Tom if he's the same Tom that Nick met in Oklahoma. 
The same Tom they know when he's awake. Tom says yes, but he's more than that Tom. He's God's Tom. Stu asks Tom if he can see if he'll come back, but Tom says it's not for him to see or say, and he moans when Stu says he needs to go west. Go look and see, and then come back. Tom repeats the instructions, and Stu asks if he can do that for them, come back and tell them. Tom says yes, unless they catch and kill him. Stu says he'll go alone, and can he find where he's going? It's where the sun goes down. As discussed by the Free Zone Committee, back when it was just the Ad Hoc Committee, they tell Tom his story, that if anyone in Vegas asks, they drove him out of the Free Zone, and they put him on the road because Tom is feeble-minded, because he might have a woman and then have idiot children. This is not a pleasant conversation. Stu's feeling sick, as he should, but he asks Tom to repeat the directions, and Tom does, but he sounds grieved and sad, which is upsetting for all three men. Stu isn't sure he can finish, but Tom asks him to finish. Don't leave him out there in the dark. Stu tells Tom to come back when he sees the full moon. Come back east to his home. Walk at night, sleep in the day, and don't let anyone see him if he can help it. And if someone does see him, if it's one person who sees him, Stu tells Tom to kill them. If it's more than one, then he should run. But try hard not to be seen at all. Tom seems to grasp what Stu is telling him, and Stu says when he mentions the elephant, Tom can wake up again. But before he does that, Stu asks Nick if he knew that would happen, that Tom would know things that he shouldn't. Nick writes that some people have considered people like Tom to be close to the divine. Nick is worried about Tom saying flag is magic, because how do you fight magic? They wake Tom up, and Tom tells the three men that he knew the hypnosis wouldn't work because he hadn't even been tired. Nick tells Tom that he did just fine, and Stu says that they came to ask Tom if he could help them. And Tom agrees, because he would love to help. Stu says they want him to go west and then come back and tell them what he saw. Tom agrees without hesitation, though Stu sees a brief shadow cross Tom's face. Stu put a gentle hand on Tom's neck and wondered just what in the hell he was doing here. How were you supposed to figure these things out if you weren't Mother Abigail and didn't have a hotline to heaven? They tell Tom that he'll be leaving pretty soon. Back at home, Fran is cooking. She tells Stu that Harold came over but didn't accept her invite to stay for dinner. Stu tells her everything about Tom, and as they sit down to dinner, they try to figure out what it all means. Fran wonders if it was a good idea to send Tom West after what had happened during his hypnosis. Stu isn't sure. Tom's story is simple enough, and it's possible Tom will be a better eyewitness than Dana or the judge. Fran points out that's possible, if Tom is able to get back. Stu tells her they told him instructions to travel east only at night and to run if he sees more than one person. And if it's only one person, they've instructed Tom to kill them. Fran is appalled, but this just makes Stu angry. He tells her, we're not playing patty cake here, Franny. You must know what's going to happen to him or the judge or Dana if they get caught over there. Why else were you so set against the idea in the first place? It's not okay to send a feeble kid out to fight our battles, and it's not okay to push people around like pawns on a fucking chessboard, and it's not okay giving orders to kill like a mafia boss. But I don't know what else we can do. 
I just don't know. If we don't find out what he's up to, there's a damn fine chance that someday next spring, he may turn the whole free zone into one big mushroom cloud. Stu then apologizes to Fran. He had no right to shout at her, but she tells him it's okay because he wasn't the one who opened Pandora's box. Fran also acknowledges that she read that you can't hypnotize someone into doing something they wouldn't do when they were awake. A person won't go against his own moral code just because they're told to do so when they're under. As a quick little side note, if anyone knows if that's true, let me know because <laughs> I'm really curious about that. I don't even know if hypnosis uh, actually works, but that's an interesting observation. Back to the chapter. <laughs> so, would Tom kill someone if they saw him heading east? It's hard to imagine Tom killing anybody, given his sweet nature, but we don't know for sure until they're in that situation what they would do. When Stu asks about Harold, Fran explains that he left survey maps where the search committee was looking for Mother Abigail. She tells Stu that Harold also has a woman now, Nadine Cross, the woman with the white in her hair. Stu points out that she's twice his age, but obviously this is not a concern for Harold. Stu's not terribly interested in the subject, and then Fran laughs and says, Harold complimented her on her sneakers, the soles of which had circles and lines. And isn't that just dippy? At Harold's home, he gets up just before dawn on August 22nd, the day after Ferris left for Vegas. He feels desire for Nadine, who is still asleep, but he needs to be alone somewhere so he can think. As he gets dressed, the chilliness of the room and the smell of it dampens his arousal. Sure, they aren't doing that little thing that is off limits, and Nadine is pretty great at doing everything else, but the room has a stale and slightly sour odor to it, a smell he associated with the solitary pleasure of all his bad years. He thinks maybe he wants it to be bad, and with that, he leaves the room. Nadine's eyes open as soon as the door shuts. Her thoughts are very close to Harold's. Her body aches with unrelieved cycle of desire. At some point the night before, Harold had had his head between her legs, and she had nearly begged him to do that little thing and end this crazy game once and for all. But before she could, she had seen his face at the window. Flag's face grinning savagely at her. Before she could scream, the face was gone, and it had been nothing more than shadows and dust. Except it was more. Her husband-to-be had been warning her, watching her. A bride defiled would be the bride unaccepted. She lets Harold do everything to her. All of that's okay? If so, it was enough to make you wonder what kind of man your fiancé really was. Outside the house, Harold eats his Pop-Tarts and drinks his coffee. He feels clear-headed after a season of insanity. It occurred to him that, for a person who had always considered himself to be a pro-Magnon man amid a herd of thundering Neanderthals, he had been doing precious little thinking lately. He had been led, not by the nose, but by the penis. He had gone to Fran's house the day before to get a look at her sneakers though he used the survey maps as the reason. And she was wearing the shoes, with the same patterns left behind in his home. It's not hard for Harold to put two and two together. She found out he had read her diary, and she came to his house to look for some indication of how he felt about what he had read. But she had not found his ledger. 
If she had, she would have read his plot to murder Stu, and she wouldn't have been so easy and carefree with him the day before. Harold begins to walk to the bus station to join up with the rest of the burial committee. It felt like when he met Nadine, he had stopped thinking, and now he wonders if he and Fran are even, and it could be called quits. He didn't want Fran anymore, did he? Maybe not, but they had excluded him. Nadine had been rebuffed as well, though maybe not in the same way. But they were both outsiders, and outsiders hatch plots. It's perhaps the only thing that keeps them sane. Harold is now working himself up into a frenzy. They had taken Nick over him, and he was only a few years older than Harold. He didn't want to wait until Bateman retired to be a part of everything. And what if they had passed him over then as well? Think. Sure, think. That was easy to say, and sometimes it was even to do. But what good was thinking when all it got you from the Neanderthals who ran the world was a horse laugh, or even worse, a thank you letter? At the bus station, there is a poster for another public meeting. Harold considers them to be public circle jerks. They had adopted the Constitution, but big whoop. What if Harold had gotten up and told them the facts of life after the plague? Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Harold Emery Louder, and I'm here to tell you that, in the words of the old song, the fundamental things apply as time goes by. Like Darwin, the next time you stand and sing the national anthem, friends and neighbors, chew on this. America is dead. Dead as a doornail. Dead as Jacob Marley and Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Harry S. Truman but the principles just propounded by Mr. Darwin are still very much alive, as alive as Jacob Marley's ghost was to Ebenezer Scrooge. While you are meditating on the beauties of the constitutional rule, spare a little time to mediate on Randall Flagg, man of the West. I doubt very much if he has any time to spare for such fripperies as public meetings and ratifications and discussions on the true meaning of a peach in the best liberal mode. Instead, he has been concentrating on the basics, on his Darwin, preparing to wipe out the great formica counter of the universe with your dead bodies. Ladies and gentlemen, let me modestly suggest that while we are trying to get the lights on and waiting for a doctor to find our happy little hive, he may be searching eagerly for someone with a pilot's credentials so he can start overflights of Boulder in the best Francis Gary Powers tradition while we debate the burning question of who will be on the street cleaning committee, he has probably already seen to the creation of a gun cleaning committee. Not to mention mortars, missile sites, and possibly even germ warfare centers. Of course, we know this country doesn't have any germ or biological warfare centers. That's one of the things that makes this country great. What country? Haha. <laughs> but you should realize that while we're busy getting all the wagons in a circle, he's... Of course, then, his thoughts are interrupted by the approaching of Weezak. Weezak asks if Harold is pulling overtime being there so early. They joke around, and Weezak laughs and calls Harold a card. Harold agrees. He is a wild card. And that's quite an ending to Chapter 55. But before I give my thoughts on Harold's monologue, so two of the three spies are spoken to, and they do agree to go west. You know, as decided, Larry was supposed to ask Judge Ferris, who really doesn't need any persuasion, as he knew what Larry was there for. For Judge Ferris, this makes sense to send people out west. It's even necessary for the Free Zone's survival. 
And the conversation with Judge Ferris is brief, but very eye-opening. And he gives us some hot takes that we haven't yet seen. Take his thoughts on Mother Abigail, for example. Or maybe even his thoughts, his take on religion and God, or God's. They have an opportunity now to change things, to reinvent things, as he puts it. Maybe instead of worrying about the flushing toilets, they can reinvent the gods and saviors. Or basically say, take them out of the equation. I take that as Judge Ferris basically saying, we can change the way we view gods, the way we apply them to our everyday living. It's like they're being given this complete do-over. And are they prioritizing what they ought to be changing? Is this the right time for gods? Ferris says that he is a rational man and he likes to do things that make him happy, especially post-plague. People want peace and rationality and routine, which is so true. And seeing God in the face of Mother Abigail means there must be the devil. And without Mother Abigail, now they have this opportunity to decide for themselves what is real and what isn't, what exists and what doesn't. I think it's a really interesting question that Judge Ferris brings up when you have you know, the majority of the world is gone. You have this opportunity to restart society. Do you really go back to the way things were? Do you let, you know, do you go back to the constitution? Do you ratify the bill of rights? Do you make any changes or do you just stick with what you know? In regards to religion, it controls so much of the country and people's way of thinking. Do you try to change that as well? So Judge Ferris also asks a question that I found to be really interesting, too. What would the committee do if Ferris and Dana, even Tom, maybe, went west and they decided, hey, this place is pretty great. They have the power on. There's everybody's got a role to play. They are organized as hell. (laughs) So what are they going to do if Ferris and Dana and Tom decide to stay in Vegas? They've already had the discussion of what to do with people who want to leave Boulder, and that didn't go over very well, nor did they ever come to any conclusion about what to do. And I think that for the committee, there's just, it's easy to explain why they haven't thought of that, because they know on some level, or some of them do, that flag is dangerous. He's a dark man. They're literally crucifying people over there as punishments, so Who would want to surround themselves with that kind of evil? But modern comforts can be tempting to some people. Electricity, warmth. Clearly, Charlie and Penning was tempted. Perhaps more have already gone. Maybe it's easy for some people to turn a blind eye to the brutality and the terror. And maybe they're willing to live in a little bit of fear in order to be taken care of. Obviously, you might think to yourself, oh, I would never do that. Who would want to do that? But there are people out there who might be willing to do it. Obviously, look at Charlie and Penning, who's ditched out a boulder and we assume has gone west. Humans are flawed, complicated beings. It's never as black and white as good and evil. Ferris also brings up another good question. Do they have backups? What are they going to do if Ferris and Dana and Tom are all killed or they don't return? Do they have a backup plan? Or are they just going to cut their losses and take their chances? This is something else that the Free Zone has not discussed. So Mother Abigail has gone out into the wilderness because she felt it was right. And Judge Ferris believes it was prompted by religious mania, maybe, rather than a direct conversation with God. But as he says, 
people who try to do the right thing always seem mad. And that's always been one of my favorite lines in this whole book. Their conversation ends with Judge Ferris giving Larry some hard truths in the vein of Wayne Stuckey and Alice Underwood, rest her soul. Larry's concerned for Nadine, but Judge Ferris reminds him that he is one man and he has made his choice in Lucy. Larry needs to grow up. He cannot be two men to two people. And I love that Judge Ferris is able to see this observation in Larry because he is two different people. He's one person with Nadine. Um, He's tempted by her. He's confused by her. And being with Nadine would mean that the old Larry would win. The old Larry triumphant. Whereas Lucy provides comfort and stability and a family. But being pulled in two different directions by two different people only seems to have disaster written all over it. And I think Larry knows this. Just as he told uh, Judge Ferris that nobody was forcing him to go west, by the way. And Judge Ferris rightly calls Larry out on this, saying, you're trying to absolve your, your responsibility to me. By telling Judge Ferris, you don't have to go. That means that if he does end up going and something happens, then Larry doesn't have to be responsible because... Well, I told him he didn't have to go, but he chose to go. So Judge Ferris knows that this is what Larry's trying to do. Larry admits that he is. And I don't think that it's completely selfish on Larry's part. I think that maybe he is worried for Judge Ferris. They seem to get along fine. They're friends. And having the weight of that guilt on his shoulders, like he has with Rita's death. Larry, I think, is just trying to... There's still little shades of old Larry in there. And I think that that's the same with Nadine. Um, Judge Ferris, he tells Judge Ferris he likes talking to him. And Ferris says, it's because I'm telling you what you want to hear. <laughs> and it's, it's fun because it's kind of a different change from Larry when Wayne Stuckey took him down on the beach and told him the party was over, that he's being dumb and he's spending his money and he's going to get into trouble and he needs to change. Larry was sullen and pouty about that. Like, I don't want to be the asshole here. Everyone's going to hate me. But now he accepts Judge Ferris's criticism. He understands that Judge Ferris is telling him the truth. And yeah, maybe it's why he wants to hear, because if Judge Ferris tells him, you've made your choice, Lucy is your responsibility, Leo is your responsibility, Nadine cannot be your responsibility, that also absolves Larry from anything that Nadine may do or what might happen to her. Um, He's not her guardian. He cannot take care of her. They had their moment and it's gone. So I really like this little parallel. I love this scene between Ferris and Larry. It's a short one, but it reveals so much about who Judge Ferris is, even though we haven't gotten to see a lot of him. But it also shows even more character development for Larry. And I just love I've loved seeing how he's grown since that first chapter um, when he arrives in Manhattan to see his mother. So we do get to see Judge Ferris leave Boulder. And this was kind of a touching little vignette um, because Judge Ferris is excited, probably not for what awaits him in Vegas. Um, He seems to understand that the possibility of returning to Boulder was very slim. So I think he knows that perhaps he's going west to die, but he's ready for this adventure. He seems up for the challenge and leaving on this adventure was one of the finest days of his life. I don't know why that makes me so emotional, but it does. It does. So I'll touch briefly on Nadine and Harold (laughs) because they both seem to be rather unsatisfied. 
despite all the kinky sex they're having. And it reminds Harold of his bad years growing up when all his pleasure was, as he called it, solitary. And he's being given everything he wants by this beautiful woman, but for that one thing. And even that seems lacking to Harold. You know, he's been shut out by his family. He was shut out by Fran, by the Free Zone Committee. And while Nadine has seemingly made Harold feel wanted and desired, like he has a place out west with them, she's still shutting him out in another way, calling it that one little thing. But still, you know, she's meant for someone else, just as Fran was meant for Stu. Harold still has brief moments of wanting to let bygones be bygones in terms of Fran, but the resentment is just too strong. And you see in this chapter with him how, oh, well, maybe they can just be, he and Fran can be even now. He read her diary. She got into his house. Maybe just let it, call it quits. Let it go. But then no, he can't. He just works himself up into a frenzy of anger and bitterness. And he is so focused on the committee that he cannot move on from this. He can't move on from feeling rejected. And even with Nadine, he's being rejected. She's never going to be fully his, just like Fran was never going to be fully his. So Harold is still kind of like the second the second man, I guess, for lack of a better term on my end. But Nadine is also giving him something, and she's also promised him a future. So I think that he's just refocusing all his doubt uh, and rejection on the Free Zone Committee rather than seeing what is happening in front of him with Nadine and Flag. And Nadine. Nadine is feeling quite unsatisfied as well. But even when she's about to beg Harold to make proper love to her, she sees Flag's face in the window grinning at her. And it terrifies her to know that he is watching. He's keeping an eye on his intended. But Nadine still questions what kind of a man is her fiancé? Because he needs to make sure she's pure, right? Okay, she cannot be defiled, as King had wrote it. And yet Nadine can basically give herself to Harold in every way, but that way. She's done all sorts of dirty things with Harold, so that's okay for Flag. He just, he doesn't care what she does. Just that one little thing she needs to keep intact for him. She rightly questions what kind of man her, quote, husband-to-be, end quote, <laughs> is that he would be willing to let her do these things with another man. She and Harold have seemingly reached an understanding, and they'll do what needs to be done. But they both still wonder, what if? Not that it seems to change their mind about anything, but that doubt is still there. And honestly, Harold's little inner monologue at the end of the chapter, before Wezak interrupts him, is kind of spot on. I mean, it's Harold, so he's probably, you know, they go about, he's going about the thought process with a lot of anger and venom, but he has a point. (laughs) While Boulder is worrying about street cleaning committees and burial committees, which are important, yes, because especially the burial committee, they need to get the bodies out before winter and before the diseases start. But they're so worried about these little processes, ratifying the Constitution, you know, committee this, committee that. That while they're focusing on kind of rebuilding society on their end, Flag is worrying about the basics. He's getting everything together. He's getting the power on. He doesn't give a shit about the street cleaning committee. He wants somebody who knows how to fly a plane. Because then in the spring, 
they'll fly over Boulder and blow it all to shit. So he, Harold knows this. And it, it would have been interesting to see him, had he been elected to the Free Zone Committee, what he would have brought to the table, if that would have changed his path in life whatsoever. And maybe if he had approached them with this, you know, blunt look, this is what we need to be doing. Because if we continue to focus on this little piddly stuff and not really push behind getting our ducks in a row, so to speak, then we're all going to be blown to kingdom come. Again, he has no idea that the Free Zone is sending three scouts west to spy, but even that's going to take some time. So I have to say that Harold did have a point that they're focusing so much. Some things are important, yes, but they're focusing so much on little things that really aren't going to mean anything if they cannot protect themselves from flag. So for me, the most significant part of this chapter is Stu, Ralph, and Tom, and Nick. And the hypnosis of Tom. He's living in a house on his own in North Boulder. And of course, it's decorated in only a way that Tom Cullen could decorate. Um, I loved reading the description of the mannequins and all the plastic Jesuses and (laughs) how he had like the credit card um, ads framed above (laughs) in his living room. Um, It's just so like pure for me. So the actual hypnosis, though, that's super painful to read. Um, only because with how harsh it is. And I get that Stu and the others have to give Tom a really brutal reason for leaving Boulder and showing up in Vegas, but throwing him out because of his disability, being afraid that he would have children like him, that was really rough. And it got me kind of emotional too. It upset Stu, Ralph, and Nick as well. And that shows a bit later when Stu blows up at Fran for questioning their instructions to Tom. But even telling him to kill whoever might see him heading east or running if it's more than one, it's possible that Tom would never kill another human being. I can't personally see it, but, you know, I guess, like I said, you never know what anyone's going to do in a situation until they're in that situation. You know, Stu has a point. This is not a game. The odds of the three scouts coming back east is slim, and they're trying to give Tom whatever chance he has to Ensure that he can survive. As Lloyd's lawyer mentioned to him back in book one, Captain Trips, it's a tough old world. I think they realize that they cannot play nice here. They can't expect to survive if they're just going to, you know, sugarcoat everything and just cross their fingers and hope for the best. They're sending spies into the lion's den. So they need to be equipped with with whatever they have, whatever they can be equipped with, to survive because otherwise they're just being sent on a suicide mission. And then what's the point? It makes you wonder too, because Boulder is supposed to be the epitome of good. It is the epitome of Mother Abigail of God, supposedly, but they're going to throw somebody out because he has a developmental disability. I guess, you know, some people in Vegas might buy that. I'm sure that they will. They would, but it makes you wonder like just how good is Mother Abigail and her band in Boulder, if they're not even going to be accepting of somebody like Tom. Stu obviously feels really guilty and upset about what he has to tell Tom. But if it gets Tom back safely, then I think that it would have been worth it. Tom under hypnosis is also pretty interesting. He knew what Flag looked like, and he knew Mother Abigail was alive. I'm not sure about Nick's explanation that the insane or developmentally disabled are somehow divine or close to divinity. 
But there's something about Tom. There's something special about him, much in the way that there's something special about Leo, about how he just seems to know things about people. And maybe Leo has a bit of the shine to him, and maybe Tom does too. Only he can't tap into it unless he's under hypnosis. There's the possibility that when Tom says he's God's Tom under hypnosis, that can be construed as maybe God is speaking through Tom, but I'm not sure about that either. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Is Tom perhaps a touch psychic? Is God speaking through him? Or maybe it's just a combination of both. I like that it really feels like the action is picking up in Chapter 55. It's been a slow burn, but now two of the three scouts have agreed to go west, and we haven't seen Sue speak to Dana yet. Nadine and Harold are a toxic pairing of resentment, rejection, and sex and doubt. (laughs) And you have Stu and the others who are putting people in a position where they could very well be captured and killed. And it's clear that they're not taking this lightly, but have they thought it completely through? As Judge Ferris said, what are you going to do if we don't want to come back? Do you have backups? So I think that, you know, the Free Zone Committee, while their intentions are good, it's also kind of flawed. This is not a game, as Larry initially felt that it was. These are real people who they may be sending to their deaths. But as Judge Ferris also said, this is necessary to ensure the Free Zone's survival. It seems like Boulder is starting to become more than a ghost town. And next week in Chapter 56, new groups of people arrive in the Free Zone, one of whom is a doctor and may not exactly be bearing good news. The Free Zone Committee says goodbye to two more of their scouts heading west. And Harold and Nadine's plan begins to take shape. And that's it for this episode of The Circle Opens, you guys. Thanks for sticking around and listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, I would love a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everybody who has already done so. I truly do appreciate it. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or you can send me an email at thecirclecloses.com. And of course, you can always find me at thecircleopens.com. I hope everybody has a fantastic week. I hope that your start of your summer is a good one. And M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week. <laughs>